We are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 23, starting in verse 19. So if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to that. Uh, or if you're on your phone or whatever, go ahead and, and swipe. Uh, but we're going to be 1 Samuel 23, verses 19 to 29. And something I learned in preparation for this message, um, if I've got an Old Testament passage uh, that has two odd number of verses as their parentheses, I'm in for it. So it's going to be, it's going to be a long one. This is going to be a, this is going to be a long one, but it's going to be a good one uh, because the Lord has something to show us in this scene in the life of David. So I'll read it and we'll jump right in. First Samuel 23 verses 19 to 29. Here's what the text says. Some Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah and said, David's hiding among us in the strongholds in Horesh on the hill of Hekeliah, south of Deshimon. Now, whenever the king wants to come down, let him come down. Our part will be to hand him over to the king. May you be blessed by the Lord, replied Saul, for you have shown concern for me. Go and check again, investigate where he goes and who has seen him there. They tell me he is extremely cunning. Investigate all the places where he hides, then come back to me with accurate information, and I'll go with you. If it turns out he really is in this region, I'll search for him among all the clans of Judah. So they went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness near Maon in the Arabah south of Jeshimon, and Saul and his men went to look for him. When David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. Saul heard this and pursued David there. Saul went, alongside, uh, Saul went along one side of the mountain and David and his men along the other side. And even though David was hurrying to get away from Saul, Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. Then a messenger came to Saul saying, come quickly because the Philistines have raided the land. So Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to engage the Philistines. Therefore, that place was named the Rock of Separation. From there, David went up and stayed in the strongholds of En Gedi. That's God's word for God's people. All right, so uh, this might excite some of you, but how many of you have watched The Mandalorian? Okay, so I'll just tell you a, a quick insight into uh, me and Rebecca's relationship. Uh, it pretty much hinged on whether or not I watched Star Wars. Uh, that is a fact. And if you guys know Rebecca, you guys know very well that she loves herself some Star Wars. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that, like, we probably wouldn't be getting married, but, like, she was kind of pushing me. Like, she was like, listen, I don't know if this is going to last if episodes one through six don't get into your head at some point. So that had to happen for me. Uh, I wouldn't say that I love Star Wars. I will tell you that I think it's, it's pretty good. Like, it's got a great story. Um, but I'm loving The Mandalorian right now. Uh, we are on episode four of season one, thanks to Kyle and Jessica Graff. So thankfully, they've introduced me to such a gem. Uh, and while I'm not that big of a Star Wars fan, I am kind of like a really like inspective guy when it comes to TV shows and movies. Uh, and I happen to notice something really important uh, that'll be good for our sermon. So you guys remember when Mando got his ship parts taken by the Jawas, okay? Like, those little things, I don't know what they are, but they are creepy, okay? <laughs> That's weird. And in order to get them back, he has to go and get a mudhorn egg for them. 
Well, uh, as he pursues this mudhorn to go get this egg, uh, Mando's not having a great time, like, wrangling this thing. Like, he gets, like, pushed out of the cave, and the mudhorn just kind of goes on this rampage. It's not looking good for him as he tries to fight this thing to get this egg. Uh, and the mudhorn's pretty much got him on the ropes, and right before, like, any kind of finishing blow is dealt from this thing, something really breathtaking happens. Baby Yoda uses the force to stop the mudhorn. Like, last minute. Like, if I had to title that episode, I would title it The Narrow Escape of the Mandalorian from the Mudhorn. And in the Bible we've got two really important visions of a narrow escape. The one we're looking at here as we survey the life of David and the one who David was looking forward to. So as we continue our series in the life of David, we want to understand that David's rescue doesn't come from any ability of his own. And it's not just from some ethereal outside power like the force. Rather, David is rescued according to the providence of God. We're going to see this happen in a minute, and I wanted to take some time to define that term providence. Uh, Because with everything we've been through, uh, particularly as a nation, all the things that some of us in this room have experienced when it comes to the coronavirus pandemic, and when it comes to, I mean, y'all, like, hurricanes are, like, ravaging Louisiana. I mean, it just kind of seems like we can't get a break, right? And then there are things happening in your personal lives that are maybe tied to these things or not tied to these things. It's just the chaos is kind of representative of maybe what even might be happening in your own heart or in your household or things like that. Um, I want to define God's providence and then expand that definition. And I want you all to keep that in your minds as we continue the reading the text today. So I'm just going to simply divine, uh, define providence as this. When we talk about God's providence, we're talking about how God's will is at work in the world. So if his sovereignty is that he rules and reigns in the world, his providence is how he does that. Uh, So Louis Burkhoff was a Dutch theologian, and this is how he expands on the idea of providence. He says this, providence may be defined as that continued exercise of the divine energy, whereby the creator preserves all of his creatures, is operative in all that comes to pass in the world, and directs all things to their appointed end. In other words, God's always working. Like, he doesn't sit on his throne and just kind of let you figure it out. He's always working. In fact, he's working closely. He's not even working with hands off. He is in your life, in your mess, in everything that you are. And he's actively working all things out for your good, is what Paul tells us in Romans. So as we read this portion of the story of David's life, we want to be asking the question, how is God working and what is he working toward? We'll have a much better grasp uh, of the character of God as we become better hearers of his word when we ask questions like that. So looking at the scene that we have in David's life, the Ziphites have approached Saul and they're selling David out. He's in the same region as them. He's in Horish. He's hiding in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul uh, has been approached by them they say, hey, he's here in our region. We got him. And uh, whenever you want, king, you can have him. We'll find him. We'll deliver him to you. And Saul says, great. (laughs) That saved me the effort of looking for him. And everywhere that 
David kind of tries to run and hide, Saul finds himself there. He finds himself on the heels of David, and David can't seem to escape. And then something happens that halts his pursuit. The Philistines, the enemy of Israel, invades the land, and Saul can no longer pursue David, and David is rescued. So that's the, the setting for what we're seeing in the life of David this morning. And what I want to put before you guys today, church, is that the way of God is a narrow way, but escape is always sure. The way of God is a narrow way, but escape is always sure. We see this play out in three points in this scene today. The first is the schemes of the enemy. That's verses 19 to the first half of verse 24. We see the warning and the way of escape in the second half of verse 24 and verse 25. And then we see the safety that comes from God in the last three verses, verses 26 to 29. So our first point, the schemes of the enemy. We see Saul conspired to kill David with the help of the Ziphites. And this plan was effective. David was, uh, was technically, uh, their pursuit of David was technically a, an effective one. Uh, and they had David on the ropes. And when Saul met David's men, it was going to be a battle if they had reached each other. Uh, and this shows that something about God's plan and purposes for our life. After all, this is only happening because David is the true king. We've been covering that nonstop. Saul was chosen by God, uh, or was chosen by Israel, according to uh, God's provision of what Israel wanted. Israel wants a king. They wanted to be like the nations around them. They were like, why don't we have one of those? God essentially is like, I've been your king. And Israel says, I mean, I guess, sure. Uh, I get like all the cloud by day, pillar by night, uh, fire by night stuff, Lord, but like we want a king like them. And so God says, all right, do what you want and select one. So they select Saul, the biggest, strongest dude. Uh, He's handsome in appearance. He's all these things. Um, And Saul is victorious at first, but just proved to be failing. Just proved to be failing as a king. And now in his jealousy and his anger as who David is, the one who came in and defeated Goliath of the Philistines, he's like, this guy has more of a reputation than I do, and I'm the king. And that's why Saul is pursuing David. So what we want to see from God's purposes and plans is that God's purpose and plans for our life don't come without hardship and opposition from outside forces. God's purposes and plans for our lives don't come without hardship from outside forces. We just finished a series in the Beatitudes here at Redeemer. Uh, That's the opening statements of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And the last Beatitude says this, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So David was a man chosen by God. All of us in this room are chosen by God, if we've confessed faith in Christ Jesus. And he went after what God desired. In doing so, even though he faithfully served Saul, like some of y'all have read 
1 Samuel. Some of y'all know about the life of David already. Like, David did not mess with the Lord's anointed. He faithfully served Saul in order to faithfully serve God. And Saul is persecuting David for who he really is. He's not persecuting David because David is David. He's persecuting David because David is God's real chosen and anointed. And God is getting our attention here with the fact that we will be like David in that way. So like, guys, I, I know that we live in America and like life here is pretty cushy if we're being honest. Uh, the fact that we can express what we don't like about our country just made us better than every country. Like, I just want to say that. Uh, and so when you kind of look at your privileged life and you see things like this, you're kind of just like, ah, I hope that won't happen. But you're not even saying, I hope that won't happen for the right reason. Like you're saying, I hope that won't happen so I don't lose like my rights. Uh, and God is looking at you and saying, regardless of what nation you identify with, like in my kingdom, you'll be persecuted because you belong to me. And so to apply this to our life, I want to ask you the question, and I want us to ask ourselves these questions daily. Do you notice the spiritual dangers trying to claim your life? And if not, then do you really follow Jesus? And if you do, are you strong in the Lord, or are you just strong in yourself? Because Saul, like y'all, Saul has something to prove in himself. He's trying to prove that he's king by his own, like, merit. David can't prove that he's king. He doesn't have to prove that he's king because he's God's chosen and anointed. He will end up on the throne of Israel. That's going to happen, and it doesn't happen because of David. It happens because of God's providence. Paul actually told the church in Ephesus something uh, very important. He said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And we see that play out against David's life. Like, David does not raise a hand against Saul once. The struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers of this darkness and against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. So when we think about the struggle and strife going on in our life, it, it, so one, I'm not saying that natural things cannot happen here that make life difficult. But what I am trying to say is this, you don't need to like pray away or think away things that might actually be spiritually harmful. Like Paul's not saying that to freak anybody out in Ephesus. He's calling them to be aware of the spiritual reality in which they now live. They were once enemies of God. They are now free in Christ, belonging children to God. And now they're enemies of their former life and the evil one. Like David, the enemy's on our heels. But as I said earlier, the way of escape is sure. So next, we see David in the wilderness and the way of escape. David is in the wilderness of Maon, and Saul's pursuing him there. And he decides to evade Saul after getting word by going deeper into the wilderness of Maon. So he's already there, and he's going deeper into the wilderness. But Saul even decides to pursue David there. It's important for us as Christians to see this because often in the familiar stories of God's chosen people going into the wilderness, we normally only just look at the disciplinary side of that. Like we read that and the first thing you start thinking is, man, maybe I'm in a wilderness season because God wasn't doing cool stuff in my life like he was six months ago. 
man, maybe I'm in a wilderness season because I haven't been reading my Bible enough. Man, maybe I'm in a wilderness season because I've been addicted to this thing for too long. Maybe I'm in a wilderness season because I don't see God providing for me. Things like that. We say that stuff to ourselves a lot, and we try to, like, insert ourselves into discipline in a way that God's not really inviting us into. Uh, But really what the wilderness has always been for throughout the biblical narrative is that God characteristically has always used the wilderness for preparation, provision, and discipline. And we are seeing that take place in David's life. What's really cool about this is that our God is not one who abandons us in the wilderness. He's more present than we can ever imagine. In fact, he knows what it's like. In Matthew chapter 4, right after Jesus has been declared God's beloved son by God in front of all of the Jewish people who go to get baptized in the Jordan through John the Baptist, Literally after being declared the one that God loves as the son. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says probably one of the craziest things that you guys probably read over sometimes. I did a lot. And it says that the spirit, being the Holy Spirit, leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. And being that we actually know that the New Testament says that God does not tempt people. What's the spirit doing? (laughs) Like, what is it leading Jesus to do? Or what is he leading Jesus to do, I should say? This is important for us because Jesus, the one that David was looking forward to, is fully man and fully God. And in God's providence, Jesus experiences the temptation to sin without ever sinning. And guys, whether you're just being reminded of this this morning or whether you're hearing this for the first time in this room, that is very good news for you as a human being. Because you and your fleshly self will sin almost every time you're given the opportunity. And even though we have the spirit of life that testifies against our flesh, even though we have the spirit of unity and the bond of peace in Christ Jesus, like y'all, we're unified to the entire triune fellowship Jesus wanted us to have that kind of unity that we would know the love of God, the Father for the Son and for the Spirit. And here we are, we're seeing it. Jesus has taken on temptation. And guys, because he fully resisted, he resisted in ways that we will never know. Like Jesus has experienced an onslaught of temptation that we can't know because often as humans, we will just give in. It might take three, four or five times for some of us more mature saints. I promise that's not me. Uh, But Like, Jesus took it like a hundred, and maybe two, and three. Like, he he kept getting battered. We don't know hits like that, y'all. And by God's grace, we are covered in him. So Jesus, in his human condition, knows no failure and is perfectly righteous. But he was tempted as we are tempted. And why did this happen? Because only a human can substitute for human lives. You want a perfect sacrifice where there will have to be no more of your own merit and your own work? Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of that kind of faith. So, let me ask you another question. 
Are you in a season of wilderness preparation or provision or discipline? Regardless, remember that God is present and does not abandon you. Jesus is the one who's looking at you living the human life and saying, come, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. You got a burden? Mine's easier, lighter. My yoke's easier. You're being carried along by something else? Come to me, I get it. Oh, you're still addicted to that? Come to me, I get it. You struggle with that? Come to me, I get it. God does put us in the wilderness. God does let us be pursued by the heels of evil forces. Jesus promised many things, and a lot of them were not favorable. And one of the things he promised was, in this world, you will have trouble. His promise is not that the trouble will go away. His promise is that, take heart, he's overcome the world. In this last point of David's life, uh, or in this scene of David's life, uh, honestly, it really puts the icing on the cake for God's providence. And before I read it, what I want everybody to do, if you have a second, I want you guys to go to Matthew chapter 2. I'm not going to read all of Matthew 2. I'll quickly give you some of the context, but we need to see how Jesus identifies with us, how he's identifying even with David through similar themes in the biblical story. And I'm just going to read the last portion of 1 Samuel where we are, and then I'm going to read that portion of Matthew chapter 2. The text says this for the last portion. So it says, Saul went along on one side of the mountain, and David and his men went along the other side. Even though David was hurrying to get away from Saul, Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. Then a messenger came to Saul saying, come quickly, because the Philistines have raided the land. So Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to engage the Philistines. Therefore, the place was named the Rock of Separation. From there, David went up and stayed in the strongholds of En Gedi. And then Matthew chapter two, chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Uh, what's happened here so far is that um, the wise men have come to King Herod. They've come to see the king of Israel because the star that rose, according to the prophets, has risen in Bethlehem, and the king of Israel is supposed to be born there. Herod's sitting on the throne as king, wondering, wait a minute, who's this? What do you mean you're not looking for me? And Herod sneakily sends the wise men off to go find the boy so that Herod can eventually kill him after he gets the coordinates from the wise men. And the wise men are led off by a vision from God to not go back to Herod. Here's what the text says in verse 13. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in another dream saying, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outweighed by the wise men, flew into a rage. 
He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when they had heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. If you've never felt more related to Jesus, brothers and sisters, if you've never thought that he identified with you more than ever, from his birth, Jesus was a man tracked down for his life. But because in that moment in his birth, his hour had not yet come, by God's providence, he was not pursued and destroyed. But he would be. He would be stricken for us. There would be a time where his life would finally be grabbed for ransom. And the ransom that Israel thought it was getting was not what it actually received. You see, the reason I had us read that in reflection and and, in comparison to David is because Saul is already king of Israel trying to kill the true king of Israel. Herod was the false king of the Jews trying to kill the real king of the Jews. They're the same people. And what's even worse is that Egypt is an enemy. (laughs) And the biblical story is trying to tell us here that Jesus had to flee to a place that once would have been enslaving of the Jews for safety and freedom. Jesus heads off into slave territory, that he would become a slave of God on our behalf, that he would be a servant who would live a perfect human life, He would die by trial as a criminal on behalf of not just sinners in Israel in the first century AD, but on behalf of all humanity for all time. The blood that Jesus shed covered all of our wickedness. Every ounce of rebellion that we have against the Lord, if you've professed that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, that if you've been brought to a saving knowledge of the truth, God looks at you and says, I love you. You are my beloved son and daughter with whom I am well pleased because of the son. And by the spirit, you have eyes to see and ears to hear that. And if that's not you in this room this morning, by the grace and mercy of God, I ask you to not just consider, but to run into the grace of God this morning. And I can't do that for you, but you can approach God this morning and do that. I want us to consider that the way of God is a narrow way. And it's not a narrow way as in there's walls coming in and crushing you from each side. It's a narrow way because there's one ravine on the left and one ravine on the right. And you can fall into either one if your eyes are not completely set on the one leading the path, which is Jesus. Escape is always sure. God spared his chosen king, and God spared his chosen prophet, priest, and king for your behalf.
the escape has not only been made sure, we've been given invitation, extended invitation to the kingdom of heaven. We now sit at a table prepared for us. And there's actually a day coming where escape's not only sure, but captivity back into the kingdom of God is coming because Jesus will take us. Regardless of where we're at, he will take us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that God, even though your way is narrow and there are treacherous dangers on every side, you have provided escape, you've provided light for the path, and you have provided rest when we are weary. Lord, thank you for saving some of us in this room and rescuing us. And God, I pray that if there are people in this room that have not professed faith in you and have not come to a saving knowledge of the truth, that you do that today. Father in heaven, I also pray that you would be with those persecuted Christians around the world, Lord, I think about Afghanistan right now and all the churches that are receiving threats, all the pastors who hold their congregations while weeping about their lives, coming to an end, but also rejoicing in who you are, that they have served you faithfully. And Father, we pray uh, for your mercy, that God, in the midst of the storm, thank you for preserving life, but God also put us as boots on the ground in the midst of chaos and use us to bring order as you called us to do in the beginning. It's in the name of Jesus. We pray all these things. We thank you. Amen.